Thank you, praise team. Well, I need to let you know that uh, you've got a little bit of a break today. Just before the service started, I walked up here and sat down in the pew to look over my sermon notes on my iPad, and I had a panic attack and realized I left my iPad at home. Uh, the good news is, 50 years ago, I was a Boy Scout. And I was prepared and left myself another copy in writing up here Friday when I was in. So you didn't get a break after all. Let me encourage the children uh, that you may be dismissed for Children's Church. And one little thing of business I would like to do before we get going. I would like to thank Munion and Debbie and Tom. Last week we had uh, the ladies... Bell Canto Choir here from Azusa Pacific University. And I had a chance to share with them before they ministered to us, and I had a chance to share with them a little bit after they ministered to us. And uh, they had an incredible time and were not hesitant about telling me so. And a lot of that was because of Munion and Debbie and Tom. I know it's always dangerous when you start naming people for doing things. But the three of you did an incredible job hosting and hostessing those young ladies while they were here with all the food, all the transportation, the housing, uh, and the food, and all the stuff in the food. <laughs> and on, on behalf of the leaders of the church and on behalf of the congregation of the church, and especially in response to the ladies' comments, thank you so much for what you did. Now, if you haven't noticed, we have started a, a series in the book of Acts. Uh, granted, we haven't gotten very far. We're still in chapter 1. And, uh, but we have, we've seen the ascension of Christ. And last, week we did some talk, or last week we listened to a choir. Today, we're going to talk. It's real easy sometimes to skip the first chapter of Acts and go straight to the second chapter and, and talk about Pentecost. But there was an item of business that the disciples had to take care of before we get there. And so that's, that's pretty much the subject of our message today. You know, it, it's sad, but probably true for most of us at least, that at some time in our lives we have experienced someone close to us, whether it's individually or someone in an organization that we're part of who's experienced a moral failure of some sort. Someone that was thought to be loyal and true and turned out not to be. And we've done that privately. We've also experienced it publicly. Even in the church, we've had leaders in the church who have experienced moral failure. And today, we're looking at a reminder of that sad experience that the Jesus and the disciples had with Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus and subsequently perished. Now, with him no longer on the scene... It became an early point of business among Jesus' core followers to choose a replacement for him. And just that act by itself, I think, should be testimony to the dedication and commitment of the disciples. Judas had done his thing. Jesus had been crucified. And yet, the disciples were re-energized by Jesus' resurrection and his, his charge to them to spread the gospel. And they know they need to have a full crew for the work that is before them. So let me encourage you, if you would, if you'd like to follow along, please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, verse 15. And as you're doing that, you may want to keep a finger or a marker back in the book of John, because we are going to go there a lot today as well. 
today we're going to see the process that the disciples went through as Peter reminded them all of who Judas was and reminded them of his deceptive acts and his self-destructive end. So, what did I do, walk up here and leave my Bible in the pew, honey? Oh, <laughs> I hid it for myself. If you would turn to Acts chapter 1, beginning, beginning with verse 15, and you can read along with me, or you can follow, I think, on the screen. Acts 1, verses 15 to 26. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Songs, Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. We're going to start today looking at this, this entire incident, if you will, by looking at Judas's status. And I'm guessing we don't have the slides yet. So you're going to have to take my word for it for now. The first thing I want to look at is, is Judas's choice as a disciple and his election even as an apostle. We'll start by acknowledging, and this is important, listen, Judas was not an accidental disciple. He was not a mistake by Jesus. According to John chapter 6, verse 70, if you want to turn there, Jesus seemed to know from the beginning of his ministry the nature of Judas's status. John 6, verse 70 says, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He knew even then. John 17, 12, On the night of his betrayal, as he prayed to the Father, he referred to Judas. He said, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, or if you have the King James, the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas was chosen as a disciple of Jesus, and yet it was known from the beginning that he would be an unfaithful traitor. Secondly, 
We look at Judas' love for money and his betrayal of a sacred trust. And I know some of you in here are uh, affiliated in one way or another with the field of accounting. (laughs) And you know what kind of a sacred trust you are in charge of. When anybody who's in charge of somebody else's purse (laughs) has a sacred trust of honesty there. When Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, it wasn't an impulse on his part. He had a history of being focused on a love for money. You might remember that he was even offended at Mary's gift when she anointed Jesus' feet in John chapter 12. In fact, look at that at John chapter 12, verses 4 to 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So he was known as a thief. John, who authored this gospel, uh, makes his comment in hindsight. And yet the disciples must have at least suspected Judas' dishonesty, based on what John said here. He used to help himself to what was put in to the money bag. So chances are, Judas' whole motivation, besides about being upset about the, the ointment that was used on Jesus' feet, was the fact that that was 300 denarii worth of stuff that he didn't get hit, put his hands on. Thirdly, look at his deceitfulness and his hypocrisy. Both Luke and Matthew record in their Gospels the cunning of, G- of Judas in giving Jesus over to the hands of the authorities that night in the garden. Matthew 26, verse 25, records a sly Judas. When, Judah, when Jesus reveals that one among them would betray him, he asked the Lord, Is it I, Rabbi? He already made plans. In Luke 22, verses 47 to 48, and Matthew 26, verse 48, as they took Jesus into custody in Gethsemane, Judas had the effrontery to use the kiss of a friend to identify Jesus to his arresters. See, it was dark in the garden. Didn't have floodlights. Guards didn't have flashlights. Might have been difficult for them to identify the correct person in the garden. So Judas planted a kiss on his cheek to identify him. Fourthly, we see Judas, his callousness in his response here. Most people who are planning to be a betrayer, once exposed, might be shamed into changing their mind or maybe even canceling their plans. But even after Jesus identified him and let him know that he knew, Judas was not put off. Again, look at John chapter 13. John 13, verses 26 to 30. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, 
what you were going to do, do quickly. Now, no, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. That brings us to seeing Judas fall to Satan. Note again that in verse 27 it says, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Now I'm sure there's no doubt Satan had been tempting Judas for some time in this regard. But when Judas failed to deny Jesus' identification of him as the betrayer, Satan entered in and empowered Judas to carry out his deceitful plan. Next we see Judas' bargain with enemies of the Lord. If you, if you carefully read Luke chapter 22 and Matthew 26, you find out that the Jewish religious leaders were not the ones that came up with the, the idea of Judas selling Jesus out to them. Look at Matthew 26, verses 14 to 16. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So, even though we point the fingers at the religious leaders of the day as the ones who ultimately killed Jesus, which is true, the whole idea of betraying Jesus to the, to the religious leaders was not their idea, it was Judas's. He went to them and even asked for the payment. Which then leads us to his cowardly betrayal. Again, because it was dark in the Garden of Gethsemane, the soldiers might not be able to see what was, what was going on or who all was involved. Judas' act of betrayal included that kiss that we talked about a moment ago. A kiss of a friend. <laughs> it was a very personal act that, that magnified the pain of betrayal. To some, that was the first blow of the flogging and the scourging that Jesus was going to experience in the next few hours. The kiss of betrayal. The eighth facet of Judah's status here is his confession. Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 to 4. We see that Judas actually experienced remorse for what he'd done. And he uh, attempted to return the money. In Matthew 27, it says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And their response is, what is that to us? That's your problem. Sorry, a little paraphrase there. And then we see Judas' suicide. Now see, a lot of people don't think too much about the fact that Judas felt remorse. Some people have used that. I've told the story a couple of times when my wife and I, the, the night we met, <laughs> our first thing was to get into an argument. Jesus Christ Superstar was very popular at the time. And as an unbeliever, I felt bad for poor old Judas. 
I said, he felt sorry for what he did. He was just a patsy for God. God planned it all out, and he was the patsy. And why my wife ever spoke to me after that, I don't know. But she did end up correcting me, and then within a, about six weeks, I had heard the truth and, and came to know the Lord. But Judas did express his remorse. and He was overwhelmed with remorse for what he had done. In Matthew 27, verse 5, it tells us that he threw down the pieces of silver into the temple, and he departed, and he went and hanged himself. In Acts chapter 1, Peter elaborates a little bit, a little bit in verse 18. It says, now, this man acquired a field. Actually, I, think, I believe this is Luke's interjection here. And that's why, at least in my Bible, maybe in yours, it's in parentheses. But it says, now this man acquired a field with his reward of, of the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. Now all the little junior high boys love this verse. <laughs> but you combine the, the uh, Matthew and Acts accounts, Remember, Judas hung himself, but he must have hung himself on a tree that kind of overlooked the Hinnon Valley on Jerusalem's southern edge. And it would appear that either the rope or whatever he used to hang himself broke or the branch broke, or maybe even his knot slipped, and he fell down into this valley, and his body was broken on the rocks below. But some people like to point at that as a contradiction where it talks about his disembowelment as opposed to him being hanged. Well, it was all the same act. Tenth, and finally, we see Judas's condemnation. Now, I have to tell you, I, I don't see any evidence that Judas was a Christian. <laughs> uh, he was a disciple. That was, he was a student. He was a follower of Jesus. But his hope in Jesus' coming for the kingdom that Jesus was coming to lead was for an earthly kingdom, one without Romans. And I think he missed the point of Jesus' deity, that he was coming to provide spiritual salvation. His hope was that Jesus' kingdom would throw off the Romans that were oppressing his people, and the Jews would be freed for their own self-determination. He entirely missed the spiritual kingdom that Jesus spoke of. Remember, the scriptures referred to him as the son of perdition, according to John 17, 12. And Luke, in Acts 1, 25, Jesus had turned aside to go to his own place. In my opinion, is that means he's turned aside to go to hell. Now, I also, I will say this. God's grace is far more incredible than I can understand. And I suppose it's very, it's possible, although I don't see evidence of it in Scripture, that before he hung himself, Jesus, or Judas might have, he might have made peace with God. He might have repented and acknowledged who Jesus was, but it probably would have said so in Scripture if that were true. But all of this summarizes why the apostles' first order of business as they waited for the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus had told them, I will send my spirit. 
And their first order of business was to select a replacement for Judas. So that's Judas' status up to this point. Then I want us to take a look at uh, the state of the church, if you will. We could never, and we're going to start with Peter, we could never accuse Peter of being bashful, could we? (laughs) He was never afraid to, to step up and to step out front, whether it was good, like walking on water, or not so good, like denying Jesus. But after his resurrection, Jesus restored Peter to a place of leadership among the disciples in that well-known Peter, do you love me story in John chapter 21. So it probably shouldn't come as any surprise to any of us to find Peter taking a leadership role in selecting Judas' replacement. As Peter stood to conduct that election, it says that there were 120 disciples present. Now, coincidentally, 120 was the exact number required by Jewish law to constitute an official council in any city. So when Matthias was selected as the new disciple, as one of the 12, it was not only right and legal in the eyes of God, it was right and legal in the eyes of Jewish leaders as well. Now, Peter gives a full background summary as to why a new apostle was needed. So I want to look at his statement. We'll start by, with his exhortation. See, as Peter makes the case about Judas in Acts 1.17, he reminds the group about Judas. He said he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And then that's where Luke interrupts with that parenthetical explanation in verses 18 and 19. Again, about him uh, falling headlong into the valley and hitting the rocks, and you know what comes after Remember, Luke is writing for a friend of his named Theophilus, who I think was a Roman official and likely wasn't privy to any details of what happened when Christ was betrayed, including as to who betrayed Jesus. In Acts 1.20, Luke cites Psalm 69, verse 25, that may their camp be a desolation, let no one dwell in their tents. And in Psalm 109.8, may another take his office. He cites those as the two Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled by Judas' death. Now there are qualifications of an apostle here that are important. Uh, Even today in some other churches, they identify some of their leaders as apostles in some churches. But I will tell you that none of those who are identified as apostles, could meet the qualifications that Peter outlines here for us. First of all, it has to be a personal experience of Christ's earthly ministry. The person who replaced Judas had to be someone who had been with the other apostles. According to verse 21, he said, one of the men who have accompanied, accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. So he was one who was a witness to all of Jesus' ministry for those three years. He had to be an eyewitness of Jesus' entire earthly ministry. Obviously, that alone would disqualify anybody alive today that might claim apostleship. Secondly, he had to have a personal knowledge of Christ's resurrection. 
Verse 22 goes on to say that an apostle had to have witnessed the resurrection of Christ. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. In other words, he had to have seen the resurrected Christ. This was important later when Paul became an apostle because he himself was an eyewitness to a resurrected Christ on the road where he was blinded. It's a reference to that 40-day time period when the Lord made himself known to his followers, proving that he was alive and resurrected. So it had to be, the man had to be a witness to the resurrected Jesus. It also disqualifies any contemporary claims to apostleship. While not part of that group, again, remember that Paul was qualified by virtue of his own personal encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And if Paul, of course, Paul was, uh, he was involved with the church, but he was persecuting the church and the disciples, but he was aware of Jesus during his whole ministry. Now, in their preaching and witnessing, the apostles often refer, referred to themselves as witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Acts 2.32 says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. In Acts 3.15, The author of life, whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses. Acts 5, verses 30 to 32, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, and we are his witnesses to these things. Acts chapter 10, verses 39 to 40. And we are witnesses of all that he did. God raised him on the third day. And again, this is critical because the resurrection, as we talked a few weeks ago, is, a, is the key to our faith. Again, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll give you a second if you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 to 17. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sin. Christ's resurrection is key to our faith. Thirdly, the third qualification is a personal selection by the Lord. Now, Peter doesn't mention the third qualification here in Acts, but the apostles were personally selected by Jesus. The twelve were. Later, Paul was. And we'll see that Matthias was also personally selected by the Lord. There are three stages to Matthias' selection. The proposal of Matthias, a prayer, and then the process. In the proposal, the scripture doesn't say exactly how they did it, but the candidates, however many there were, there were at least 120 of them present, down, they whittled them down to two. Our pastoral selection committee is familiar with this process, are you not? <laughs> and it took a while. But there were 120 of them, and they whittled down the candidates to two in that upper room. In verse 23, it says, And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, 
who was also called, or that's his surname, was Justice, and Matthias. These two men represented the poor from which, or the pool rather, sorry, represented the pool from which Judas' replacement was to be chosen. So then it brings us to the prayer for him. Now we have no way of knowing the full resumes of these two guys, whether they had equal qualification or not, but clearly the 11 wanted the Lord to choose their 12th companion. Verses 24 and 25, it says, And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So they're praying here for the Lord to choose just as he had chosen the original 12. Now, believe it or not, even the process that they used has led to questions in the church about how we should make major decisions. And sometimes they say, well, should we use this method? And in general, I can say, no. <laughs> Let's take a look at it. The method that they used, after they prayed in verse 24 and verse 25, it tells us in verse 26, and they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. Now, I don't want to put our, our deacons on the spot, our pastoral search committee, but was it your plan to cast lots for the next pastor? <laughs> oh, my bad. <laughs> that becomes a problem for a lot of people because it sounds like gambling, doesn't it? Isn't that, isn't that the association we've kind of made for that with that over the years? But casting lots at, in that time and in that culture was commonly used in decision-making. And it was used throughout the, the Old Testament. For example, in Leviticus 16, verses 7 to 8, in choosing which of two goats would bear the sins of the people outside the camp, in that scripture, they cast lots. In Joshua 14, verses 1 and 2, the tribes divided the promised land by lots. In Nehemiah, we've heard a reference to Nehemiah already, chapter 11, when the Jews came back from Babylon, they cast lots to select one-tenth of them that would live within the city walls that they had built. They cast lots for that. So it wasn't unusual for lots to be cast. And although the casting of lots appeared to be random, let me point you to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So the Lord made the selection of Matthias. The disciples had confidence that the Lord controlled the outcome of the lots. Remember, at this point, the Holy Spirit hadn't come upon them in the upper room yet. They're still operating the same way they had in the days of the Old Testament, making decisions and getting guidance the way believers did then, what that is without the benefit of the guidance of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. Interestingly, after the Holy Spirit comes upon the church in chapter 2, the casting of lots is never mentioned again in the New Testament. Not necessary then. The Holy Spirit is now the counselor and the guide for God's people. Now, there are a number of reasons in Acts chapter 1 why the apostles had to wait. 
They needed the power of the Spirit to witness and to organize themselves into the church and make critical decisions. They probably had no idea how much they needed the Spirit. But as they faced even larger challenges to spreading the gospel, they would figure it out, how critical his presence would be to them. They would come to rely on the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They would no longer rely on the Old Testament means of guidance and input. And then finally, we look at the man that they elected. Verse 26 concludes with their decision. And he, Matthias, was numbered with the eleven apostles. You know, the name Matthias means a gift from God. And that's exactly what Matthias was. He was a gift to the new church. The twelve had been chosen to identify with the twelve tribes of Israel. And the absence of the twelfth apostle would would have been significant. During the ten days that they waited in the upper room, the only action they took, aside from praying, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the priority of prayer and that that's what they spent most of their time doing, but the only action that they took, aside from praying, was choosing that twelfth apostle. And they wanted to be at full strength when the Holy Spirit poured out, was poured out upon them because they knew that then they would have their charge and they would be going out to do the work that Jesus charged them with doing. And they wanted to be at full strength. The challenge that Jesus had given them to take the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the ends of the earth would take all of them. And they were going to be paired up two by two. That would have left an odd man out too. And Jesus chose the twelve to begin with and they wanted to be twelve when they started that new ministry. So there we have that. And we come to my question. Okay, so what? It can be pretty tempting, again, like I said before, for us to skip over this first chapter of Acts and go right to Pentecost and start talking about the thousands that were saved at Pentecost and and the excitement of the new church. But I think it's important for us to first see that there were priorities that the apostles maintained during this time, four of them specifically. The first priority we talked about a couple of weeks ago was prayer. They also had placed a priority on waiting on the Lord. They had a priority of seeking the Lord and finally depending upon him. It's important that we see and understand these priorities before they were immersed in battle that comes in chapter 2. Earlier we said that chapter 1 is foundational to the understanding of the rest of the book of Acts. It demonstrates how intimately Jesus was involved in instructing his apostles and equipping them to do what he had commanded. Here's here's where I want us to boil this all down, folks. That same Jesus that equipped his disciples in the Acts wants to equip us, his followers today, to finish the mission that they started in the first century. Dennis and Laura and their boys are on their way back to Belgium to engage in battle and doing exactly that. I'm excited for you guys. I think that's wonderful. 
and there are others like them all over the world who are engaging in battle. Take the gospel to those who haven't heard and those who haven't responded. We have the same charge right here in this pretty little village in California. There are people who have not heard or there are people who have not yet responded to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And our charge is to give them that gospel. Our, jar, our, our job isn't to save them. Our job is just to get them the gospel. Then the Spirit will water those seeds that we plant and grow them. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We have been selected just as these 12 were. Are we ready to go? Pray with me. Father, when we contemplate what it is that you have called us to do, it, it can be kind of a, an awesome, scary responsibility to have been chosen deliberately by the Lord Jesus for a job to do is it's kind of intimidating. And yet, Lord, we know ex- precisely from your word that that is exactly what you have called us to do, to be the bearers of your word, to be witnesses to your resurrection, witnesses to your gospel, witnesses to your power to a world that needs to hear it. So, Lord, I would just pray that you would give us all an excitement to be carrying that gospel out to the people, the people of Cambria, the people of California, uh, the people in Belgium, as, as Lavelle's head for Belgium, for people all over the world, because they all need to hear the gospel. It is the Lord's will that none would be lost, and yet your word acknowledges that some will. Lord, it's my prayer that they would not be lost because they never heard. So, energize us. Re-energize us. Pump us up. (laughs) That we might take your gospel out to those who need to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen.